Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent. Well, thank you, everybody. And we are excited to be able to do some work with Capo. We have been a multi-year supporter of Capo and we'll be out there at the in-person conference in Monterey in uh, January 8 to 11. And, you know, my group works with procurement shops around the country to help them with their projects. And we've had a chance to do some work for Stockton. And I've met City Manager Black a couple of times and he's super dynamic. So, Harry, they gave a little bit of an intro. Um, you know, I when I went to your LinkedIn to prepare for this, I was really shocked at stuff I still didn't know about your CFO experience and your procurement experience. So, you know, maybe you can say hello to people and in terms of them as procurement professionals and and give us a little bit of a walk through um, how you came to your current role as city manager, and then I'll take you from there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Dustin, and everyone else. It's a pleasure uh, to participate in this webinar. Uh, you know, public contracting and procurement has been something that's always been near and dear to me, regardless of what other positions that I've held within local government. Public procurement is really a big part of the backbone of who I've become from a professional standpoint. I still rely on the principles and practices and thought process that I've relied on as a public procurement executive, even as a city manager. Uh, I started my public procurement career with the city of New York uh, back in 1991. At the time, uh, New York was really sort of evolving its form of government. It had a board of estimate structure, and a board of estimate structure is a super finance component mm. that over, sort of sat atop the entire city government. They approved all financial transactions for the city, and it became quite corrupt. And so the voters basically voted to get a, to do away with the board of estimate structure. Uh, they created a procurement policy board that established procurement regulations and policy. They created the mayor's office of contracts to implement those policies and to manage the day-to-day -day operations as related to procurement for the city of New York. So I was hired by the first chief procurement officer for the city of New York as his assistant. And we were in a very uh, reform mode. Uh, we were uh, implementing some of the first elements of procurement technology ever in the United States. This goes way back. You know, the technology of the day was EDI, electronic data interchange type stuff. Nothing like what we have today. Uh, very, very, very primitive if we look at where we are today. City of New York at the time spent about $7 billion a year through procurement for the operating side of things. And then another $4 billion a year in capital construction. Uh, we had 1,700 people citywide who did procurement on a full-time basis. That's all they did. So the office that I worked for, we oversaw that entire process. Uh, I ultimately was promoted to being the assistant director for special projects. Again, as I mentioned, we had automation efforts going on. Uh, we had a multitude of procurement reform efforts. We, we uh, were doing a lot of innovative things. We contracted with NIGP. Uh, and uh, created, 
established a procurement training institute for the city. And we ran all personnel through this institute. Uh, we were able to get everyone, all 1,700 individuals, NIGP certified within a year and a half. So that was the beginning, beginning for me. Uh, it was the beginning for me because particularly when I was the assistant to the chief procurement officer, I would always ask him, I was young, eager, ambitious, you know, how can I be helpful to you? I would always ask him this. So one day, you know, I had a little small cubicle and uh, he dropped off a book that was about 300 pages on my desk. He says, Harry, if you want to be helpful to me, you need to learn everything that's in this book. Mm. And the book was the Procurement Policy Board Rules and Regulations. Mm. So that was it. So that taught me a lot uh, uh, in terms of understanding the, the theory uh, behind the practice that we do. Uh, and it's something that I stress to people to, to this very day. So uh, did that, migrated into finance with a different agency. And then I ended up going, uh, following my previous boss, the chief procurement officer for the city of New York, to Washington, D.C. He became the chief administrative officer for the District of Columbia. And I was still working in a financial realm. I served as a senior financial advisor to him, helping to coordinate the efforts of the finance portfolio for the District of Columbia. Obviously, uh, budget, finance, and procurement. Uh, and then, you know, fast forwarding a few other jobs, I was the budget director for the District of Columbia, I was the CFO for a particular agency within the district government, and then I concluded my time with the D.C. government as the deputy chief procurement officer for the District of Columbia. So we had a chief procurement officer, and then there were three of us who served as deputy uh, CPOs. Uh, and uh, my role there was basically, once again, it was, it was more transformation-related-oriented. Uh, we were implementing one of the first automated procurement systems in the country, which would be more related to present-day type of technology, but still cutting edge, or as we realized at the time, bleeding edge, cutting edge. Uh, it was, you know, we created a standalone network uh, for the procurement operation for the District of Columbia. Uh, we implemented that successfully. Uh, uh, and so what I realized putting my CFO cap on, uh, I had my team to do a data dump. Oh, I, I worked with the CFO's office at the time to do a data dump for me on all transactions, all procurement and purchasing related transactions. And I discovered that 80% of the transactions were for less than 20% of the dollars. So we were spending 80% of our time on less than 20% of the total spend. We did a couple of things in that regard. One is we took three transactional forms. Okay, we had a requisition, we had a purchase order, and then we had the, the whole three-way match process that facilitated and initiated getting somebody paid, getting a vendor paid. Uh, we created the three-in-one form. We combined all three of those forms, and it also served as a contract mod initiation form. So it was four things, really. We condensed all of those into one form, which became the front end piece of the, of the whole system. And then to uh, become more productive, more efficient, and more effective. If you were doing electronic marketplaces then, you were way ahead of your time, Harry. Uh, but a lot of people still haven't gotten that kind of lockdown. So, and I want to start 
pulling you towards the West Coast now. How did you translate that into a city manager role? And then, you know, talk about how you came into the city manager role. And then let's get into kind of what people maybe can't hear from anybody but you, which is the connection of that to to that past, that public procurement past. So how did you end up becoming a city manager in, in uh, the 11th biggest city in California? Yeah. Well, I, I've always wanted to be a city manager, but I, I gave up one prospect because it hadn't happened. It was taking too long. And so I said, maybe it's just intended for me to be the CFO. And, and I just settled in. And so I was the CFO for the city of Baltimore, very big city overseeing a $3.4 billion budget. Uh, we had 15,000 employees that made up the city government. Uh, and uh, it's a, being a CFO for the city of Baltimore is a big deal. You're like a super department here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're involved in everything. I spend more time with the mayor than anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously because it's about the money. And then I got a call from the firm that placed me in Baltimore. Uh, they, they called me, reached out about the city manager position in Cincinnati. And so I struggled with it because I wasn't really ready to leave Baltimore. But I said, you know, this is something I've always wanted to do. So I, I've got it. I've got to give it a shot. Otherwise, uh, I may regret it. And uh, so it worked out. I ended up being the, the city manager of Cincinnati. And now I'm the city manager for the city of Stockton, California. Um, as Dustin mentioned, we are the 11th largest city in California. We have about 322,000 residents. Uh, and uh, uh, it's great to be the CEO of the organization because it means that I can get a lot of stuff done that I otherwise would not be able to do. Uh, a lot of times our CEOs don't have the complete vision or vision at all, to be quite frank with you. Uh, and, and it starts there. It starts with the imagination, the creativity, and the vision. Uh, and, uh, and, and so procurement really, again, is underlying pillar of my overall development uh, because procurement is really decision making is problem solving if you do it the right way uh it's business uh procurement buying things is business you have to understand business uh and so that's how i approach things uh, uh i like sharing uh, my procurement expertise with my team uh uh so in the city manager's office they should view me as just being uh, you know, another one of them. You know, mm-hmm. I understand the function. I understand the <clears throat> trials and tribulations of being a public procurement official and professional because it's just like human resources. It's just like the budget office procurement. You know, you only as you only liked as well as you got your last transaction done. Mm-hmm. You can do ninety nine transactions well, and that one that you can't do defines you. You know, so I get all of that. I understand all of that. And uh, and uh, so you've got another procurement-minded person at the table uh, uh, to be supportive. Uh, and that's sort of how I view myself. So I've, I've been in governor's offices and then I've been on city, you know, city commissions in Austin, two or three different ones. And I know that when you are in the CEO type role, that there's so much that has to do with direct citizen uh, support or interaction or the, the, the cliche of the firefighting in the day. So, I mean, how does how does a typical city manager view the procurement function? Is it just something that's over there and it just happens? Do you think that typically a city manager 
cares about procurement? And if they care about it, is it for the positive side or to avoid the negative side of, oh, don't get us on the newspaper? So like, how does it, I mean, I know that it may be hard to opine on the on your profession in general, but um, do you feel like most city managers, what would they say they, how, how, would, how do they view procurement in terms of their priorities? Uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I think that most city managers uh, don't think about it because they don't really understand it. They don't know about it. Uh, I mean, I'm very active with respect to procurement in my organization. You know, uh, I challenge my team all the time because I, I know what the possibilities are. But I think most city managers, uh, they understand procurement less than they understand human resources uh, and less than they understand budgeting. And they don't understand either one all that well, okay? Uh, uh, unless they've come through that, that chain some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because these are business functions. You know, I view, you know, I approach being the city manager of the city as being what it is, the CEO of a corporation, okay? And and I've realized the value of those uh, C-suite type functions. You know, although procurement in most cases is not viewed as a C-suite function, unless you go to New York City, unless you go to the District of Columbia, you know, they're standalone entities. They report directly to the CEO uh, or is equivalent. And so, it's different. Uh, uh, I think, so what I try to do is I try to elevate the procurement function within the organization because I understand the value, but I don't think many of my peers really understand the value. Well, let's role play then. So, so let's say you're in a situation where maybe it's not that there's not interest, but compared to other priorities and maybe it feels backline. So, how does somebody who's in procurement um, raise the the opportunity for procurement to be seen as a strategic asset? Um, and I guess I guess that within that, you know, I'll say that we've done lots of assessments around the country of procurement organizations, and I've never been in an organization that wasn't busy. I've been in a lot of them that weren't strategic because maybe they hadn't had leadership that helped them set it up in a way where they could actually deliver some of the strategic value. And then they get stuck in a lot of the the microtransactions and they're always kind of behind the ball. Um, So how does how would a procurement person start using different types of language or maybe finding different types of ways to elevate the 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 understanding of the power that is in the procurement function? I was a program manager and director. 
directive contracts. Uh, in D.C., there's a whole lot of staff augmentation goes on, all levels of government, lots of money in that area. Uh, you can probably attest to that, Dustin. Uh, so my, my company, we were the capital construction arm of the U.S. Department of Labor. And I was the program manager and director of contracts. So when I got there, they were, they were budgeted $100 million a year for design and construction contracts. When I got there, they were barely spending $20 million. Okay? And it wasn't because they didn't have the money. They weren't set up for success. So when I got there, I implemented some fairly basic, simple things. And ultimately, we got up to $100 million a year in contract awards. Okay? So solving that problem uh, highlighted and spotlighted the procurement aspects of the project to the, to the town client. And so I was involved in every meeting thereafter. Uh, we were co-located with another contractor, physically co-located. I was a program manager for all the back office stuff, budget, contracts, IT, asset management, real estate. But the big 800-pound gorilla was Parsons Brickoff. They did all of the design and engineering work. Okay, uh, but they had them doing the procurement, and engineers don't do procurement. Okay, hmm. they do engineering, and so I come in as a program manager on the other side of the project, and I uplifted our side to the point where the client only wanted to deal with us. But I came up with a solution. You see, so so I think that where we can in procurement in our organizations figure out a way okay there's a problem over here or there's an opportunity over here what can we do to fill the gap and elevate ourselves and therefore elevating our value with respect to the organization so harry you kind of went in a direction where i'll talk about vendors for a second because you were talking about vendors and interacting with vendors by design part of the point of procurement is that we can't or don't choose to in public sector do everything that we could do for ourselves. We engage with the supplier community as a component of delivering services. Um, we don't choose to have our own fields where we grow our own uh, uh, beets and radishes. We, we purchase that from somebody who has a grocery store. So our supplier network is very important for our success. And of course, we've had some opportunity to work for, um, for Stockton, help you guys on some of our uh, solicitation extension support and the rest. So you know, outside of us, of course, you guys have hundreds and potentially thousands of suppliers. So how do you view uh, the importance of building a, a positive copacetic relationship with the vendor community as a component of your ability to deliver as a city manager for the people that you're serving? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, you know, it's, it's a really good question, Dustin. It is something that I don't think we, we, we contemplate often enough. We just don't. Uh, in government, we don't really take care of our vendors. You know, in government, we don't appreciate our vendors. We don't respect our vendors. Uh, we take our vendors for granted. And that's a mistake. Our vendors are partners. Uh, they're helping us to be successful. So we, you know, we can respect, appreciate uh, our vendors without violating any policies or procedures. You know, just paying them on time to start with. You know, not waiting to the last day to pay them. 
you know, just understanding and uh, having empathy for what they're dealing with from a business standpoint. Uh, we, we don't do enough of that. Uh, so I stress that whenever I can to my people is we've got to take care of our vendors. If we take care of our vendors, they will take care of us. Uh, uh, you know, we don't, we should not treat our vendors as second class citizens. Uh, so I, I, I think, Dustin, I think we, we, we have a lot of room for improvement in terms of vendor relations and vendor management. The private sector, they do this well. Okay, they do this well because they know that it impacts their bottom line. And not just their financial bottom line, but their product production, their service delivery, whatever they're selling uh, uh, is, is, is very important. Uh, just wanted to go back to a couple mm -hmm. of other examples in terms of how do you make yourself valuable. Right. I go back to my time with the District of Columbia government. What I recognize is there's a lot of tension between our end-user agencies and procurement, you know, which tends to be the case. A lot of, lot of friction, a lot of tension. <coughs> and I realized that a big part of that, Dustin, was that we weren't doing or recognize the need to help our end-user customer with helping us to be helpful to them. And departments and agencies don't do scopes of work well. They don't know how to. And so they just sit on it. And then we get it at the last minute and it's a lousy piece of work. Mm -hmm. And so we're gonna get a lousy uh, product from the, from the marketplace. So something that I was able to persuade uh, the chief procurement officer to let me do was I said, look, let me put together a procurement where we can pre-qualify a cadre of outside entities that can come in and work with departments in developing scopes of work. This is, Dustin, this is back in 
Have we really thought about what the sourcing strategy should be for a particular category or really rethinking the RFP set? Should this be multiple RFPs? Is this, uh, should we do it in a task order style? And what I, when I've seen procurement shops that are just really like hair blown back, can't find oxygen, it's either due to staffing shortages or due to a design problem where we haven't designed things to take advantage of um, some of our opportunities of scale to do category management style solicitations. And then it becomes hard to ever get over the top because just the raw mass of micro transactions that are coming across that can't be fulfilled with the amount of staff that you have. You know, we talk about cutting the lawn with scissors. You know, you can do it, but it's the wrong tool for the job. We need to rethink what the job is and the approach to the job so that we can free our procurement people to be able to use all of their brain and not just simply move the paper. So, I mean, you, you know, going back to your experience in DC and New York, I mean, how would you help a shop that was stuck in a, you know, a really like micro transaction set to start building a story for what could be if they had the support and the resources? We have to engage more in procurement planning. It's something that we did back in the day. Uh, we would do uh, something novel. We would actually set up a procurement budget. Uh, what I meant by mean by that is we would work with each department to list out all of the procurements that they were going to project to do in the upcoming year. Uh, and the tasks that were going to be necessary to get those things done. Uh, and we would do that in alignment with the overall budget and formulation development process. Uh, so we could now begin to plan and be more strategic. I think today, uh, agencies and cities and organizations are going to have to embrace even more than they have in the past staff augmentation. Okay strategic, seamless staff augmentation because we can't hire people fast enough and we're not developing people enough to go into these professions. Uh, so it's going to be a matter of necessity and survival to uh, come up with the right blend and mix of in-house and staff augmentation support. It's mm -hmm. going to be critical. Uh, and to the point where you won't be able to differentiate between the in-house person and the contract person. Uh, so I, I think we're going to need to do a whole lot more there. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get my organization more comfortable with that. Uh, I don't think we do enough staff augmentation. You know, here's a city manager saying, go out and do staff aug. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. having to yell it out mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. when it should be the opposite. There's a, I mean, we're doing a lot of that kind of work right now. I'm calling it procurement as a service. I mean, just specifically in procurement, we are doing that. We have, we have several um, entities in California we're doing that for. And I've been in business for 12 years. I've only seen the appetite and the willingness to admit that need in procurement in the last year and a half. And that's a combo of ARPA, you know, allowing some of the, the funds to be used for consulting purposes and you know, I think there were a lot of retirements that got delayed because of COVID. A lot of people who maybe would have left two years ago have, you know, are kind of like, well, guys, I, you know, I've got a garden to tend to. And so, I mean, you're seeing some of those retirements actually come as well as the shortfall of folks. And I would say in my experience where we're doing that in places, there's a lot of initial pride, right? Because procurement tends to 
Procurement has always been expected to shoulder an impossible burden. I don't understand how we got into that mix, but like, you know, the amount of things that were shouldered by one individual person was dramatic. And so I, I do think there can be a conversation. You were talking generally in the city, and I agree specifically in procurement that um, procurement, we should understand what kind of work can be turned based on the staff that we have at quality without burning out those people, because if they left, that'd be a whole other risk. And, and then therefore, if there's X amount of work beyond what we can do with the staff we've chosen to put at the function, how do we manage that just from a pure HR perspective? Dustin, uh, you know, a little known fact, which is a scary fact, more than 60% of all public sector employees, federal, state, local, are either retirement eligible, which means they can go to HR right now and put their papers in, or they're near retirement eligible, which means that within the next two to three years, they can go. Okay, so we are at the precipice of a crisis. And uh, so it's not just procurement, it's, it's across the board, as you said. So. Uh, we're going to have to embrace that staff augmentation a lot more in mm. order to uh, uh, deal with what's coming. It's it's uh, I'm seeing it every day and I'm seeing the need to really think about it from a sustainability perspective and a, and a variety of competency perspective. We had a couple of questions from uh, from one person in chat. I'll try to see if I can synthesize it. What can a city manager do to make sure that the city manager understands their roles and how to resolve problems? Um, I think we sort of hit that one. Uh, Kim, if we didn't, then please. I mean, I think I think we did like five minutes ago. She There was a second one that was interesting, which was how should a procurement manual maintain a healthy relationship with a city manager that wants to select the vendors and contractors? <laughs> um, you know, I, I've always said that, you know, procurement has to be able to say to um, to leadership that, let me protect you, right? Let me be the baffle to to consume that kind of energy because that's how we get procurement to be bombed back into the stone age is to have one really bad crisis that would set back the ability to execute then for for 20 years because we'd have new governance because of it. So, how do you how do you help maintain this role of the procurement manager with you know with with a CEO who wants to get some things done? Like what is the language? I mean, it's it's the language that public procurement professionals, HR professionals, and budget professionals in government have to deal with every day. It's a dance. Uh, you know, you have a a professional fiduciary responsibility to your city uh, that you must adhere to. But at the same time, you've got to do this dance with certain individuals. It could be an elected official. It could be someone above you. And I think what you laid out, Dustin, is, is really the approach. And that is, you know, you've got to be a good communicator to be able to tell someone you can't do this. Or this is not the right thing to do without telling them that this is not the right thing to do or whatever the case might be. You're finessing. You're finessing your communications uh, uh, to get through another day, uh, and it's just no way around it. I mean, I I do that all the time as city manager, particularly with my my elected officials, uh, developers all the time because people want what 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 they want. But what's important.
very knowledgeable about what you do, okay? The more you know about what you do, the more effective and successful you're gonna be in your communications, okay? You, you, you gotta know a lot uh, in order to be able to uh, articulate a rationale, okay? And more often than not, it will work, but you've got to be on top of your business. You've got to know everything about it uh, and uh, to be number one, to be confident and to be comfortable. And then you can be that much more an effective uh, communicator. So let's take two others from chat and that'll probably put us right up towards the time. And Sylvester asks, how do you create a teaching and partnership environment with procurement and departments? A lot of times when procurement gets in that hair blown back place, it's because we haven't said a, done a good job of saying what it means to use the procurement department and to interact with us as professionals so that it's being able to deal with things at some level between you know, a cocktail napkin with bullet points and, and, a, and an 80 page tone. So a lot of it is how do we say what it means to consume the procurement department? What do you think? How do you create that relationship and that partnership relationship between departments and procurement? You know, it's, it's, it goes back to my time in DC. We have to have our procurement professionals trained and developed in a way in which they, they are able to interact with their customers uh, in a way to get them to be helpful to them, to be helpful back. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 if, if, the fire department is one of my customer departments that I need to spend time with the fire chief. I need to understand what, what, what are his or her challenges? You know, what, what are they, their plans, their vision, you know, what kind of procurements do they, 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 they may have coming up at some point over the next six to 12 months that maybe we can get started on early, you know, uh, being a partner. Uh, uh, that's, that's a, that's a, an important thing. Uh, uh, I don't know if that answered. No, it did. No, perfect. Perfect. So perfect. So, so Gabby had a question that we'll spend a little time on. So Gabby asked, what advice do you have for somebody who's new to procurement? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, first of all, God bless you because we need you. Second of all, make sure that you get opportunities to be exposed to different kinds of things through things like Capo and NIGP and some of the rest of the forums, because the more that you expand your personal uh, exposure to items, the, the better that you are. And really understand that when I say that purchasing is inside of procurement, if you're in a job where you're doing purchasing, which is just pure, grind it out, go get some paper, go, go get three phone call bids for air filters, find opportunities to say, I want more. I want to be able to impact my community and do things. So how can I grow to that? What do I need to grow to that? That's one of the things I try to consistently talk about when I'm talking to young people is really lean into this because there's a huge career in here for you. Harry, what do you think? How, what is your advice to young people who are kind of coming in, like how they can grow and how, um, what kind of career is waiting for them in this kind of a job? Absolutely. Uh, one of the first things that I would say is, is obviously look a lot, listen a lot, uh, and study, study the history of public procurement. Okay, how have we gotten to this point historically? Okay, it's very, very important. You know, when you get to the point of uh, 
sitting for your certification as your NIGP or whatever, you're going to get a lot of that history. And that's for a reason. This is absolutely critical to understand the why and the how. Uh, so study study the history of public procurement. Uh, that's going to help the the practical, the policies and procedures that you're engaged in every day make more sense to you. You'll say, oh, I see why we're doing it this way. Uh, you're going to have to study. Study, learn. You're going to have to look fast because with this silver tsunami coming, they're going to be phenomenal opportunities for you. You're going, to, you're going to have opportunities presented to you that you're not going to be ready for, but you're going to have to still go for it because we're not going to have the luxury of waiting for the right time. We're just not going to have the luxury. Uh, we're, we're, we're going, we're, we're, right now we're treading water in terms of, uh, of, of staffing. We're treading water. We don't have enough staff. We've got vacancies all over the place. It means that we're going to have to promote people and coach them up. And so I'm, I'm going to say this is a great time to be in government. It's the worst time, and it's the best time. <laughs> if you're young and you're getting started, it's the best time because it means that you're going to ascend in the organization, and you're going to ascend in the profession much, much faster out of need and necessity. So get yourself as ready as you can. You know, study, you know, uh, learn about procurement. Again, the history is very important. You know. Uh, you may not qualify to sit yet for certification, but don't wait for that to force you to learn the history of the profession and the function, because it's going to help make help for you things to make more sense to you in terms of the day-to-day stuff that you work on. What do you think about that, Dustin? Absolutely, and we had a late breaking question, which we still have time for. Um, of course, Brianna's question could be a whole hour. Um, but I will uh, I will seek to consolidate it and we can answer it and then invite Jennifer into the conversation. So Brianna says, you know, we've there was discussion in some of the things about it, like CPBB on strategic planning and market research. How do you put it in practice and gain experience with harnessing data to make efficient choices when you're already faced with like two plates full of, of procurement? Um, it's a great question. And a lot of times one of the biggest challenges when you have a procurement shop that is really, really transactional is it's really hard to kind of rebuild the the car while you're you're driving it. I would try to find an area in your organization where you know that you're doing a lot of onesie twosie type of procurements. Man, we keep doing phone call bids for catering services, and there's a lot of transactions for which there's not a master contract that's associated. If only there was a master contract for this, we would be able to gain efficiencies that then gave us gain us time. The only way to rebuild the car while you're driving it is to find some action you can take that helps you gain time. So don't just do data analysis just for the sake of data analysis, unless you have like a large staff and a commitment to it. Um, if you're gonna, if you need to find oxygen, look for those micro transactions that are consuming a bunch of time and say, why don't we have a contract for this? Could we have a contract for this? So one of the problems sometimes for a procurement is they don't feel like they can initiate procurements. They feel like procurements only come from the departments, but that's not true. Central procurement can look at its contract portfolio and say, there is an inefficiency here because no one has yet taken an action. And so if you're really early in a process and super hair back, I would try to find some specific situations where by changing the way that you acquire a thing, that you gain back time and data can help you to isolate what those opportunities are. And then you take that as part of your market analysis. Harry, have you been in some of those situations where you've got to try to start data analysis from like zero 
and try to do something with it in a short term? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you mentioned it, uh, particularly with my time in D.C., as I mentioned, I did a whole data dump of a, a year's worth of transactions, and I realized that we were spending 80% of our time on 20% of the spend. And so we created the D.C. supply schedule program to deal with those 80% transactions, which freed us up to do more high-value, high-level stuff with the 80% of the spend, but what was 20% of, uh, of the activity. But I, I, I think, Dustin, you, you laid it out perfectly, but I would just add one other thing. Uh, let's not lose sight of common sense. That's the big thing. Common sense. For sure. Well, a great conversation. Everything that I hoped it would be. I hope you guys got great stuff out of it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Harry. That was great.